Good morning, everyone. Very glad to see you all this morning. It's sort of a dark day outside, so I'm glad you got over here. It's not cold, though. Isn't that nice? I mean, I'd rather it be colder and sunnier than dark and not cold, but whatever. Um, glad to see you all. We are going to be looking at Leviticus today. We're going to be pressing on. Chapters 6 through the 12, basically, is what we're going to do today. We're going to finish up from last week, and then we're going to get into what is you know, continues to be super engaging writing. For those of you who may have read Leviticus before today's study, I hope you had your coffee. Um, reminder that we have a great mailing list. Um, Bub sends a note each week to remind everyone that we are meeting or not, and what the subject matter will be that goes along with our bookmark, our published schedule. I Just a quick note that in a few weeks for spring break, we will not be meeting. But we continue meeting beyond that. We will meet on Ash Wednesday, that's March 2nd. We will meet during Holy Week, that's normal for us. And so use our class on Ash Wednesday as just a way to come on to church, do a Bible study. Then there's a noon Ash Wednesday service. You can take all your friends, it'll be great. And so I hope that you will check that schedule, make sure, but if you are not on our mailing list, then send a quick note to Bub. You can find your email address on our website, stmichael.org slash rbs for Rector's Bible Study. Um, we had a number of people join this just this past week. And so if you are not on it, especially those of you watching online, then get on that list so you are kept up to date with what we are doing. And let's open with prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we ask that you open us up. Help us to put down those things which trouble us, those things that cause us stress and anxiety and fear, that we can make space for your spirit to fill us up, and that as your spirit fills us up, we can help to be brought closer and closer to your reality and to your truth, that we can become more and more the people you created us to be and reach out into the world with your hands of love. Be with our friends our family, our neighbors, who need your healing touch the most today. Uplift them with your peace and with your presence. All of this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so a quick reminder that I love questions. So if you have them, make sure you ask, especially those of you online as well, about this monitoring those chat fields. Um, we did get a few questions last week that I want to address before we jump into today's lesson. So last week we got a good question. Sally asked, we actually got two questions from Sally's. So we have lots of Sally's in the group, it's great. One Sally asked, I'm wondering when the faithful Jews quit offering animal and grain sacrifices, were they still doing that when Jesus was born? And so that's a great question. Last week, we noted that Leviticus goes into great detail about how one is to sacrifice animals. Today we're going to actually talk about the sort of levels at which animals can be sacrificed and which ones are more valuable and all of that good stuff. But suffice it to say, physical sacrifices were important. Sacrificing animals done in a particular way at particular points in time and when things have happened in your life and on and on. That sacrifice was tied to the use of the tabernacle. And so what I want to make sure that we, as Christians, we can kind of forget that place and space matter as critically as they actually do for the Jews. Because for Christians, our place and our space matter, but 
they are not the actual point for us. We believe that God is here with us because we are people of faith who are gathered together. If we were to leave this space, it's not as if God is more so here than where we are. We could all walk a few blocks up and have a wonderful worship service and God is there. God is not more here than somewhere else. For the Jews, the understanding at this point in time was that God was absolutely more so in the tabernacle than anywhere else. We've discussed a little bit that if we fast forward to the temple period when the temple was built under Solomon, the Jews really believed that God touched the earth in the temple. Yes, God was present. God was everywhere. They would have had that concept as well, but not the same way as in the temple. In the temple, God was physically touching the earth. There was a power in God's presence there that was different than other places. And so sacrificing to God was connected to that place that God touched on earth. And so the temple was absolutely critical. That first temple was destroyed. The Jews went into exile. They came back and they rebuilt it. That second temple was the temple that Jesus went into. So we, of course, know Jesus went up to the temple. Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby. He went back. He turned over the tables, all of that stuff. That's the second temple. That second temple would have been where the Jews would have made their sacrifices. And so specifically this question, were Jews still making sacrifices when Jesus was alive? Yes. But in 70, 70 of the common era, so only a few decades after Jesus' death, that temple was destroyed by the Romans. When that temple, the second temple was destroyed in 70, essentially sacrifices stopped. They didn't make sense if you couldn't go where God was. Does that make sense? So God didn't need you just like out in a field somewhere slitting a sheep's throat. That, that was not the point. You brought your sacrifice to where God was and God was in the temple. When the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed that temple, offering sacrifices kind of didn't make sense anymore. And so there were a few small groups that continued to try to do sacrifices privately, kind of in their homes or somewhere like that, but that more or less stopped after a generation or so. And so essentially, since the first century, Jews have not been doing animal sacrifices in that way. Now, I think it's an interesting question. If a third temple were to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, would they? I don't know. I, I kind of think no is the answer. but. What do I know? I am no Jewish scholar. And so, I don't know, is the answer. But they've not been doing animal sacrifices of any kind since the first century. Well, I mean, I, you will always have some random person as an exception to any rule. But broadly speaking, Jews do not do that. Other offerings are still happening. But the whole sacrificing animals, no. Chris, what did they do with the animals? So what happens to the carcasses of the animals when they were sacrificed is a very good question. And it, my answer is it kind of depends on the time period as to what happened. Early on, those animal carcasses would have definitely been kind of given away as charitable to people who were hungry, yes. As the Jewish law progressed, 
and was refined more and more, those animals became unclean. We're going to talk about clean and unclean today because that we get into that in chapters 11 and 12. A sacrificed animal has done its job and now is unclean. So a good Jew would not eat that meat. But there were plenty of people who were not that picky. And so one could have been a Jew and man, they like to be a good Jew. They are also starving and might die. They're going to eat that animal. And so <clears throat> the development of religious laws over time, over the centuries, leading up to the first century where Jesus was, made it more and more difficult for the average person to be really a Jew in good standing, so to speak. It was so hard. And that essentially meant that unless you were of the priestly class or you were extremely wealthy, you could kind of never do it right. Um, you were almost always unclean in some way because it was just too hard. If you labored in almost any way, then your labor likely made you unclean. And so how many people could just not labor? Very few. And so at this point in time at the foot of Mount Sinai, the complexity of the Jewish law had not yet been reached. And so those animals would have been eaten. I mean, that yes, is the answer. But fast forward to second temple period, no. Those animals would not have been eaten. Occasionally, you've got periods of time where the animal carcasses would have actually been completely burned. So you would have had an animal sacrificed, then the blood would have been offered, and then the carcass itself would have been gone, gone to a pyre and burned completely. And that's not every period of time. Because remember, we're talking about a thousand plus years here of time. And so things ebb and flow in certain Things be, go into favor and out of favor as we progress. But you can find a period of time where they would have been either eaten, not eaten, or even burned. And that shifts throughout the history. Any other follow-up about that? Our next question is good. <clears throat> good, okay. Our second Sally asked a question that I thought was very helpful. Moses is receiving direct communication from God, as did Muhammad. Can they be compared as spiritual leaders of different traditions? And is Moses mentioned in the Quran? And so this is a great question. As Christian people, we are given one very clear command, love God and love our neighbor. Okay, that's it. Jesus kept it super simple. It is difficult for us to love our neighbor if we don't know our neighbor. And so learning about other religious traditions is actually a really excellent thing for a Christian person to do so that we can properly love one another. When I was back in a few churches ago, back in Alabama, I did a whole series on Islam because my first graduate degree was in comparative world religion. And so I did this whole thing about Islam. This was only a couple years after September 11th. And we were had just kind of gotten into the Iraq war, the second one. And people were just kind of hungry to know what was going on and how things differed. What I loved about that is, although a lot of people came to that study, that was great. There was a tragedy about 
six or nine months later, where a young father in his late 30s was struck by a car while he was out jogging early in the morning before the sun had come up and was killed. He and his family were Hindu. And people started calling the church because they wanted to do something sweet for this family. And of course, this is in Alabama, y'all. So in Alabama, what do you do? You take food. I mean, Texas is that way too, but Alabama is like really that way. So you want to show someone love when they're grieving, you feed them. And so they wanted to take food, but they weren't sure what food was okay to take. Um, were there dietary restrictions? Could they make certain assumptions and what that sort of stuff? And in order to find out what they should do, they knew they could call their church and get a good answer. And I loved that. I love that here are these nice, good Episcopalians who are trying to show love to their neighbor and they know their neighbor's not Christian and they're trying to figure out how to do it and they know their church will be able to help them do that. Love it. So <clears throat> in order to answer this question, I think it's important that we kind of just unpack a bit of Islam so that we know really how to put this into context. So is Moses in the Quran? The answer is yes, absolutely yes. In the Quran, there are 25 prophets named. Those prophets are sacred in the tradition. Muhammad is the last prophet. Jesus is the penultimate prophet. And so Jesus, in a sense, is the great prophet before Muhammad. Before Jesus, you have a whole lot of people that we know. People like Moses, Adam and Abraham and Noah and David and all these people that we know, they are all sacred prophets in the pantheon of Islam. The Quran tells many of the same stories that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the only woman who has a chapter, a book in the Quran named for her is Mary. More real estate is taken up in the Quran to tell the story of Jesus than any other single person. Moses is named more than any other individual in the entire Quran. So all of these stories are there. And I thought it would be interesting for you to just hear a quick little passage from the 26th chapter of the Quran about Moses leading the people to the edge of the Red Sea and then passing through it. So in the 26th chapter of the Quran, oh, a, a note. <clears throat> Much of the Quran, God is referenced as we. So you're gonna hear here, we inspired or we said, that's God. I am not enough of a scholar to tell you exactly why it is a plural we versus an I, except that I was taught that there is this, I hate to call it like the royal we, but there's a, there's sort of a sense in Islam of a pantheon of God's omnipotence. And it's almost indicative of God's total and complete presence that it would be God would reference himself as we, which take that for what it was, whatever. Okay, so here's chapter 26. They pursued them at sunrise, the Egyptians. When the two groups sighted each other, the followers of Moses said, we are being overtaken. He said, no, my Lord is with me and he will guide me. We inspired Moses, strike the sea with your staff, whereupon it parted and each part was like a huge hill. And there we brought the others near, and we saved Moses and those with him all together. Then we drowned the others. In that there is a sign, but most of them were not believers. Surely the Lord is almighty and merciful. 
And so there's just a little quick note about how Moses plays a big role in the Ark and the story of the Quran as well. There are some Islamic scholars that say Moses, in a sense, prefigures the story of Muhammad. There is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of speaking to God and taking commands and being humble about the way that you respond. Um, there's the burning bush and all the other stuff in the Quran. And so then you get that sort of mirrored in a sense with God speaking to Muhammad and revealing the Quran and that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of overlapping and a lot of repetition that harkens back to a sacred story that we all share. Yeah. Does this, the fact that it's in the Quran, does this add authenticity to the Jewish story? So, <clears throat> if Moses' story in the Quran, does that add authenticity? Eh, that's my official answer. Um, I, <clears throat> no, not really, because Remember that this is a, these are Semitic and Arab peoples that share a really small geographic footprint. Both all Judaism, Christianity, Islam all root themselves back to Abraham, but differently. So Abraham's first son, Ishmael, went down into what is now a technically Saudi Arabia and other places, into the Saudi Peninsula, and really root themselves as Arab people. And it is through Ishmael's line that Muhammad arises, becomes a prophet, receives the Quran. Through Isaac, we get Jacob and then the Jewish people, and then of course the Christian people. And so even though Abraham is the common ancestor, that's, a, that's the most common ancestor because then it forks into, with Ishmael and Isaac. Why I say that is Muhammad and the early Muslims were not Semitic. They were really Arab. And so even though they're not the same kind of ethnic, cultural, tribal identity, in that specific sense, Arab and Semite, they're still so related, they're like cousins, that much of these stories would have been known. And so the people who received the Quran were people who would have absolutely known all the stories of the Jews. And so I think it's, a, it's just a bridge too far to say that Moses' story in the Quran gives some sort of like historic validity to those stories because essentially, uh, okay, so I, I would, as a Christian, I would say because the people who received the Quran as a holy book knew all those stories. Now, of course, Muslims believe that the Quran was given directly from God. That is fine. Um, as a Christian, I don't share that kind of literal inerrant belief. And so I see the complexity of oral tradition impacting the way in which people experienced God in the world. And I'll stop there. Okay. Yeah. Even what you said about the Quran, doesn't it seem inconsistent with not all, but some Islamic countries have a real tension with the Jews? Do I, will you say the very end of it? Well, there's a 
tension between. Oh, you said tension. Okay, I didn't hear you. Um, what? So I'm sorry. The question is: Given so much overlap in story, why is there tension between Muslims and Jews today in certain parts of the world? This is so. I need a lot more time with you um, to really get into this. Which, to be honest, I'd be happy to do because my special my specialty in that first in my first grad program was in religious conflict. Um, and so it wasn't just world religions; it was actually the way that religions conflict over time and in history. And so I do love this stuff. What I will tell you, and I think at this point, because we have a compressed amount of time, you just got to go with me and trust I'm not stupid. Um, is for most of their history, there has not been tension between Muslim and Jews. What we perceive as modern tension between Muslim and Jews is very modern. This is not something, when people tell you, you know, oh, the conflict in Israel, Palestine is intractable, they've been doing this for 2,000 years. No, 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 they have not. This is something that is 20th century made. And although there were certain qualities inherent that allowed the conflict to flare very quickly, in that part of the world, different peoples and cultural, cultural, ethnic, um, racial, whatever, backgrounds got along very well. They were business partners and they were neighbors and all of those things. And it was not really until you get the, the complete end of the Ottoman Empire in the two world wars that what we understand as the conflict actually starts. Just trust me. <laughs> yes, we, and we can talk about that some other time, but that's very tangential to what we're doing today. Okay, any other questions just or clarity on that? Great, let's go. Chapter 4 of Leviticus. We didn't quite finish this last week. Jump into chapter 4. I'm going to read a few little sections of verses, but we're going to jump through the chapter because nobody needs me reading all of any chapter of Leviticus. So, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, When anyone sins unintentionally, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull of the herd without blemish as a sin offering to the Lord. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Now jump to verse 22. When a ruler sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by commandments of the Lord, his God ought not to be done and incurs guilt, once the sin that he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a male goat without blemish. He shall lay his hand on the head of the goat. It shall be slaughtered at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Jump to verse 27. If anyone of the ordinary people among you sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and incurs guilt, when the sin that you have committed is made known to you, you shall bring a female goat without blemish as your offering for the sin that you have committed. 
All right, there we go. What I want to highlight in this chapter is that not all sins are created equal because not all people are created equal. The Old Testament lays out very clearly there are responsibilities and expectations of people in certain roles, which then makes their sin even worse than others. I want to start at the bottom. <laughs> Pardon, I don't really, well, whatever. Let's start at the end of the chapter with the ordinary people. Okay, so if ordinary people do something wrong, then what they say here is bring a female goat. Now, if we think about the structure of herds, essentially a female is seen as just ultimately less valuable. Sorry, that's just, it's the Old Testament, it's not me. And so the female goat is brought because it's kind of easier to bring a female goat. It's a little cheaper, it's a little easier, all of that sort of stuff. So ordinary people, you bring the female goat, a ruler. So now we're talking about noble person like up there, high up, needs to bring a male goat just a little bit harder, a little bit more expensive. So we're not talking about a massive difference, but it's enough. So it essentially, ordinary people sin, you need to reconcile yourself to that sin. If a ruler sins, it's a little bit worse. So you have to do it a little bit better. But who was first? If a priest sins, then what does the priest have to bring? A bull without blemish. We are talking about the most extreme, most expensive way to reconcile the wrong. I think this is very important because it is for us within our community necessary to differentiate the Old Testament's opinion of responsibility from what is very common today. Today, I think most people would say, hey, we're all people, we're all imperfect, we all mess up, we're all in this together. That's from a grace perspective, you know, a human to God grace perspective, yes, of course. But when we're talking about human community, no, we are not all responsible in the same way. I remember being in seminary and we would vet this idea because most of my colleagues did not think that priests, specifically we were in seminary, so we were talking about you know what we were training to do, should be held to some kind of higher standard than just anyone. And I always disagreed. I said, absolutely not. And it's not because a priest's sin is somehow more damaging in a sacramental or in a salvific way with God? No, I do not believe that a priest somehow can undermine God's grace more so than non-priests. That's not it. I'm talking about our human community. A priest, when a priest messes up, it is a much bigger deal than when someone else messes up. And it does not mean that God then loves the priest less, but it absolutely means that there are things that a, per a person in the community could do that does not really change their status. But there are things a priest could do that would absolutely change their status. 
I think there are lots of things that if a priest does that, then they can still be loved and saved by God, but they can no longer be a priest. They cannot function in that role because there is a sacred trust and a much higher responsibility given the priestly role in a community than just anyone else. The Old Testament agrees with me. Now, I don't think, which, which is like one of the only times, and so I'll, I'll claim it. Um, but that is essentially what is happening here in chapter four is we are setting up a really high level of expectation for the priesthood. Now, unfortunately, what that means then is fast forward centuries and the priestly class becomes, in a sense, the highest caste within the Jewish tradition. They are separated. They cannot touch people. They cannot dilly-dally with the ordinary because, in a sense, they have to maintain their extreme responsibility and blessing and role. And we see that occasionally in this world. There are Christian bodies and Christian groups where the priests are very separate. You don't touch the things and you don't, oh, did you all see that New York Times piece about that poor Roman Catholic priest in Arizona? Um, no, oh my gosh, you've got to go read this because this is absolutely crazy. In with all the love of Jesus. So there is a, there was a Catholic priest in Arizona, Phoenix, I think, who spent his entire career baptizing people. Now, A, he is not American and English is not his first language. And so I think there was some issue like that, but baptizing people by saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, no, no. The words are, I baptize you because it is in the Catholic theological sense. The baptism is coming from God. The priest is the vessel of God baptizing that child. It is not the community. It is nothing like that. Okay. So I get all that. And I actually agree. Yes. But what the Catholic Church has said is that all people who he baptized, all of them, their baptisms are now invalidated. And everything else that they have done in their life, every other sacramental thing they've done in their life, marriages, funerals, everything has been invalidated because of the words that he used in the baptism. I am so with it that we should say I, because I, as a person who baptizes, I am very clear, I am not baptizing this child. We are witnessing a sacramental moment that God, where God is present, yes. But you know what? If I misspeak in some way, do you think that I have prevented God from doing something here? Uh, no. And the idea that language like that would then cascade, and we're talking about thousands of people. That are stunning to me that that kind of thing would happen. So what I am saying is we still today have this, we can get so legal about the way God functions that we forget that God is so much bigger than us. We cannot limit God. God's always bigger than we think. Whenever we think that we should exclude or anything like that, remember, God's always bigger than we think. And so this is one of those moments where, although I do think in the humane sense that there are certain roles in the community that require a higher level of responsibility, I do agree. 
that fundamental idea can be taken to the extreme and barriers can be put up between different groups of people to, in a sense, create class or caste that is not what I think God is intending. I think God is simply calling people into lives of responsibility that are all unique and all important and are different, which is redundant because that's what unique means, but whatever. Okay, any questions or comments about that? Yes. It does seem like this hierarchical expectation of perfection uh, has come back again. I think it went away because, you know, cardinals and bishops and popes and kings were incapable of error. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like this has really come back uh, in our culture here, at least, and I don't know, probably uh, to a certain degree that, you know, the president, for example, or governor, mayor, misspeaks in the slightest. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right now in our culture, we are super hypersensitive about any little mistake anyone makes, and then they are slaughtered for it. Um, we forget people are human, honestly. Um, and it doesn't mean that people... Now what happens is leaders are in a position where if they make a mistake, they either have to double down and say the mistake was not a mistake, and they meant to do that, which is ridiculous because it's stupid, or... They have to apologize for the mistake, and then any apology is seen as weakness and some somehow makes them unfit. And it's so we've so perverted the simplicity of just being human and just apologizing. I tell colleagues, young priests coming out, that if I have any superpower as a priest. It's, I will apologize for anything, anytime, to anyone. I don't care if it happened before I was born. I will totally apologize for it. Um, because it's powerful. I mean, apology is, in a sense, vulnerability. I mean, you, you deepen through intimacy the vulnerability of apologizing. And by the way, I mean, apology is, we often conflate apology with culpability. Often they do go together. It is not always. Sometimes you can apologize to a person because you care about that person. You're not necessarily admitting some sort of like horrible action that you took, but because a person is hurt, an apology helps to love the person. And that can be very powerful as well. But writ large, yes, we're, we are not good at apologizing. We see it as weakness when I think an apology is more often strength than weakness. And we're just, that's one of many ways that the world is messed up. Thank you for pointing that out. Depression. Okay. What else? Good. All right. Let's press on. Chapter 7, verse 11. We're going to talk about being generous. I want you to be grateful that I am skipping whole chapters. You're welcome. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 11. We're going to talk about generosity and the call to be generous. Chapter 7, verse 11. Here we go. This is the ritual of the sacrifice of the offering of well-being that one may offer to the Lord. If you offer it for Thanksgiving, 
You shall offer with the thank offering unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of choice flour well soaked in oil. I mean, it's a lot of oil. With your thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being, you shall bring your offering with cakes of leavened bread. From this, you shall offer one cake from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who dashes the blood of the offering of well-being, and the flesh of your thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being shall be eaten on the day it is offered. You shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice you offer is a votive offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that you offer your sacrifice, and what is left of it shall be eaten the next day. But what is left of the flesh of the sacrifice shall be burned up on the third day. If any of the flesh of your sacrifice of well-being is eaten on the third day, it shall not be acceptable, nor shall it be credited to the one who offers it. It shall be an abomination, and the one who eats of it shall incur guilt. It's sometimes hard for me to read this without kind of giggling to myself. So here's the gist. Making an offering in Thanksgiving is a good thing. How one makes that offering is important. You can make that offering day one, but you're offering good stuff. Did you hear about all the cake with the oil? Sounds good. So you're making this offering, yes. Then once you've made the offering, you can eat it, which is kind of like baking someone a really nice dinner and being like, look, standing on the porch and being like, I made this dinner for you. Aren't you grateful? You're welcome. And then taking it home and eating it. Like that, that's not how that works. Um, but of course, God is not going to consume the cake. And so can't you see how this kind of idea could have evolved just because it's sensible? Someone brings first fruit offerings. Remember last week we talked about making offerings to the best of our ability. So for some people, that might mean offering an animal. For most people, animals were too expensive. They could not have offered animals. And so then what? How about a cake? Because you're still working hard for the grain, working hard for the oil. That is not priceless. That is, a, that is still something. And if what you can do is bake God a cake and you can offer that cake to God, that is a good thing. That is meant to be Thanksgiving. But what happens to the cake? Because you know you put the cake on the table and you're like, thank you, God, for what you've done. And the next day comes and that cake is still on the table. So what's going to happen to the cake? Eat the cake. But you can't eat the cake on the third day. Okay, so there's the summary of that chapter. <laughs> I do want to talk about sacrifices of well-being. There is a very, very clear sense in Judaism, and it keeps on, and it is in Christianity. We inherit this from the Jews that our sacrifices really are connected and rooted deeply in thanksgiving. So there are three basic ways that you do a thank offering, which is kind of detailed here in this chapter. The first is it's totally straight up. Something good has happened in your life and you come and you say thank you to God. At the time, that could have been any number of things. The crops actually grew well. Thank you, God. A child was born and the mother and the child are healthy. Thank you, God. Somebody got married. Thank you, God. Whatever that is, something good happened. It is perceived as a blessing from God. You say thank you to God. Great. The second could be preemptive Thanksgiving. Someone wants to get married. They're not getting married yet, but they would really like to. And so they give thanks to God 
and in a sense, pray for, ask God's blessing in a particular way. Someone wishes to have a healthy childbirth, so you would make an offering to God. This is where the prayer stuff gets fishy. And we've talked about this before. Because the sense that if you do this right, you're gonna get the response you want is very, very old. We, as good, complex, faithful people, know that God is not a cosmic vending machine where if we put the right change in, we get the right item out. So it's not about if you make the right cake, you're gonna get the healthy childbirth. That's not how this works. But at the time, absolutely that is the way that people believed God was working. God could, of course God could keep a mother healthy and a child healthy. Did you make the right offering? Then everyone's healthy. A mother and a child die in childbirth? You might should have gone to the temple beforehand. I mean, unfortunately, that was really the way people perceive things. Because, to be honest, we don't like the world to be chaotic. I mean, it's it is easier to believe in a God that is or is not deciding whether you live or die than to think it's chaos. And so this develops very sensibly. Third, I'm... A free will offering is just sort of extra. Like you're having a good day or something happens and you just wanna say, thank you, God, that's great. Think of this as the difference between a pledge and the offering plate. So most of us pledge and we say we're going to give the church a certain amount of our income. That's kind of the sacrificial giving. We perceive that as if that's the tithe or whatever that is, we have decided we're going to give in the sacrificial way to the church this year. Boom, that much. But then of course, we're coming to church on Sundays and we're passing the plate and you throw a 20 in the plate or more, then you know you pass the plate, that's just extra. That's just free will because you have it and you're here and it's a nice day and you're grateful, here you go. Free will is not connected to the sacrifice. It's just ice. It's the cherry on top. It's just the thank you. It's the simple stuff that help us continue to be rooted in that sense of God's presence. Questions about that? I'm gonna actually get through today. Yes, sir. So it seems like all the way through on all these sacrifices, the priests get to eat something along the way. So, yes. obviously, this is a way to sustain yes. the priesthood because they can't work, I would assume. Yes. Yes. Okay, so the observation is that throughout all these sacrifices, it is kind of nice the priests get to eat stuff. And yes, that's right. Because the, uh, the classification of roles has become so very clear that being a priest is a particular job it, they have to do it because no one else can do it for them. So there is this, the, the priesthood is an intermediary in a very direct way. I don't know if any of you who were not raised in the Episcopal Church may have ever wondered why we do call our ordained people priests. Now, some people call us pastors or preachers or whatever, which is fine, it's fine. But the reason we say priest and not minister 
is very much the same way that you know Roman Catholics or Orthodox Christians will also use the term priest. There is a particular understanding that our role is sacramental, that we are not just nice people, that we are not just people who can tell a story or you know create a moral on a Sunday morning or whatever, that we do function in a sacred, holy, sacramental sense. That is rooted back into the ancient Jewish identity of priesthood, where it's not just a person who is, you know, likes to be at church more than other people. It's not just that. There is a responsibility that we have to care for the sacred things. And it is natural that in Judaism, and then Christianity sort of assumed much of the same identity, that being a priest just takes a lot of time. I mean, so a priest can't also be a farmer. A priest can't also be a shepherd. A priest can't also be a blacksmith most of the time because priestcraft requires a certain amount of time to do it well. And so you're exactly right that there is implied in these sacrifices sustenance for the priests because they can't raise their own animals or raise their own grain or all the other stuff. And so there is kind of a nice little, you make your sacrifice, and that also then helps to sustain the people who are, in a sense, on your behalf doing the sacred things. Where we get in trouble today is where we think that the priests are, in a sense, the professional Christians. And so you all give generously, time, talent, treasure, which, I mean, your giving pays my salary. That is directly, so it may not be, I may not be cooking the lamb that you brought to slaughter, but it's the same difference. And so it can be confusing. We can be confused into thinking that we then, are to go and be Christian in the world on your behalf. It's not the same thing. We kind of take care of the sacred things, right? I mean, there are things in here that we're supposed to care for on your behalf. But when it comes to living in the world as a faithful disciple of Jesus, we're all in it together. Different. It's differently done. But some of that responsibility hits us all and ebbs and flows in our life. You know, when you're raising children at home, you're much, much busier doing that sort of, sort of stuff than before or after your children are home. So we get more time and less time, and, but we're all responsible for doing something. And so much of how we root our own identity as priests can be seen here in the Jewish tradition, where priests are kind of, they've got that job to do, which means they can't do the other jobs. Much of those other jobs are necessary to sustain life, like food. And so there is this kind of, some food gets kicked to the priest because otherwise they don't get it. Any other thoughts or questions? Nope, okay. Chapter nine. God is calling. <laughs> Speaking of, we're going to be discussing ministry expectations. Chapter 9, verse 22. We're going to read the end of chapter 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10. 
this, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Leviticus kind of gets interesting. There's a little bit of drama. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 22. Aaron, who, by the way, is now functioning as the chief priest, okay? Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. Did you hear all that? All three. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is good. God is present. Now chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, Through those who are near me, I will show myself holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron was silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Uziel and the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come forward and carry your kinsmen away from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. They came forward and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had ordered. And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Idamar, Do not dishevel your hair, and do not tear your vestments, or you will die, and wrath will strike all the congregation, but your kindred... The whole house of Israel may mourn the burning that the Lord has sent. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is on you. And they did as Moses had ordered. We'll pause there. Yeah. Come on. Some drama, finally, in Leviticus. All right, so this is an extreme story, obviously. <laughs> Basically, the story is... These two priests, more or less, do something wrong, fire consumes them, they die. I think it is appropriate that we respond to this story, like, what the heck? What we see, however, is that doing the wrong thing that God has told you to do can often respond with something horrible. We will see this happen multiple times. So here's one of them. Later, when the Ark of the Covenant is being carried into Jerusalem, people bobble the Ark, and one of the helpers reaches out to study the Ark so it doesn't fall on the ground, but you're not supposed to touch the Ark, and he drops dead. We also see this in Acts of the Apostles. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? So as the early Christians are gathering outside of Jerusalem in a little camp, they're sharing all their stuff. Anyone who wanted to be part of that community was supposed to sell everything and bring all the money together and pool it all together to help raise up those Christians in that first century, right after Jesus' ascension. Well, Ananias and Sapphira show up. They were wealthy. And people say, did you bring everything that you own? They're like, yeah, yeah, we brought everything. No, they didn't. They had too many things. They weren't fully committed. So it was kind of like, yeah, they sold their house, but they kept the mountain cabin. Right? So they were, they didn't want everything. They didn't want to get everything up. But they said they had. They knew that they were wrong. So did God. They dropped dead. So we have throughout, including Acts of the Apostles, 
This, these stories where doing the wrong thing just drops you right on the spot or consumes you with fire or whatever. And of course, we have all of that stuff in the prophets. There's lots of fire and wrath and whatever. What I want us to know of this story, I think we can glean a few things. The first is worshiping God is serious business. This is not at your convenience. This is not at your pleasure. God does good things. Worshiping God is our responsibility, period. Our lives are gifts. We worship God, period. This is not if we think God is good. No, God is good all the time. And this is not if we feel like it. No, it doesn't matter what you feel, you go. One of the things I like about the Episcopal Church is like other ancient Christian groups, it does not matter how you feel. You may be completely mad at God right now, go to church. It doesn't matter. You can be joyful, rejoicing in God, go to church. And if you are mad because something bad has happened or you're angry or you're weeping or whatever, go to church. That is, it does not matter how you feel. God is good and God wants you. However you feel, bring it because God wants all of you. In this, we can glean worship is critical. I also think that we can receive this story and before you ask, do not ask why God would do this. Remember, we are more complex than that. We know that these stories are not necessarily historic records of things, but instead stories that help explain how people believed God was acting in the world. So the better question is, why do people think God did this? Let's play with that idea. We've done this many times, but life is hard. People die. Things are unjust and on and on and on. It is easier to think that God is doing things for a purpose than it is to think that just bad things happen. And we have vetted this idea in here often. I think you know by now, I do not think there is some glorious map and everything that is going to happen to us has already been predetermined and that every bad thing that happens to us is for a grand purpose. God is not mean. God does not give a child cancer and has that child die for a purpose. That's not okay. That does not happen that way. But what can happen is that God can be glorified when horrible things happen. That's a new one. It's a tweak. It's different. God does not cause the bad, but God can make wonderful things out of bad situations. That's where our faithfulness comes into play. That's where our relationship to God really matters. Because God is not deciding whether or not we will or will not get cancer or whether our spouse will or will not die. That is not happening. But when we get cancer, God is with us right there, helping us to turn what is a terrible thing into something good. Knowing that this world is not all there is. This is not all there is. Our faith, our promise that Jesus gives us is that there is something better coming. That something better coming can actually be tomorrow and it can be after death. It can be all of it. It doesn't have to just be 
in the unknown. It can be in just the next day. But there's a big difference between God causing the pain and God helping us in the pain. And that's what we need to kind of slide into. Ancient peoples absolutely believed that God did it all. And so it is natural for us to fall into that groove because that's kind of the way humanity has seen the world forever, ever, ever. Jesus offers a different view. It doesn't mean that Christians understood perhaps the complexity of the view that Jesus offered immediately, but I do think over time we have developed a much more well-formed idea of the God that Jesus was trying to offer to us than perhaps immediately understood in the first century and beyond. Yes? My dad is shaking a little bit about Aaron and his reaction because the way I'm reading this, it looks like he has four sons. And the first two, they had an Abihu, they are brought dead because they did some unauthorized fire. And then he goes on and it says, he says to Aaron and two other sons and two son. huh? that they got, and they don't keep, you know, keep your hair unkept. What's his reaction with his four sons? And I got you two of them drunk dead. That doesn't put the fear in you. Or what's yeah. the reaction well, here? I loved the, um, <laughs> the, the simple reaction. And Aaron was silent. I mean, obviously, there's not, there's not an extreme amount of emotional intelligence in the writing of Scripture most of the time. Um, that could be, you know, you could say whatever you want about all of that. Um, I think emotions, emotional intelligence and complexity are certainly a bit more modern, I think, than ancient. Um, I think a lot of times, ancient peoples did not have time to just wallow. They had to do stuff. I mean, sorry, you couldn't just kind of sit in your pain for a few weeks or else all the crops died, right? Or your children starved. Or I mean, they were just, you, had to, you just had to keep moving. I imagine that was a, a, a bummer. I mean, that's, that's a sad way to be where you can't actually just grieve. Um, that's why grief periods after death were established. Because in a sense, there was a formal way of grieving. Um, I don't know about you. I, I think I've said mentioned here before, my father's family is Lebanese, and I know like when my grandfather died, you, there there still is that sense of there is a 30-day period of grieving. And the point of establishing something so rigid, it's not as if on day 31, it's done. No, that's not how that works. The point of that was actually so that the community understood what was needed. So Say a man dies and his widow is now in mourning for 30 days. It's not so she can sit and be sad and we just leave her alone. No, she needs food. Her family needs food. She's unable to do certain things that sustain life. And so the community surrounds her and brings food. Like it's kind of a joke, but you know, whatever, whether you're, the Mediterranean people get this, like Italians and Greeks and Lebanese and Turks and all the other stuff. They totally get, whenever something bad happens, you bring food, right? That's Southern too. You Something bad happens, you bring food. They're, it's not, it's today, that's not so necessary because you know you can, you can just get on Grubhub and you can have food brought to you. It's not as if 
we cannot get food. That's not the point. It's because the grieving process takes a person out of their daily work life. And if they are not working every day, they are not eating. And so when a bad, thing's ha bad thing happens, the community says, you know what, you've got 30 days. It's okay, take time. We will then do work on your behalf and we will bring the food to you. So that kind of meal chain, when you bring food to someone, it's not because they can't get it. It's ancient, it's rooted in centuries old practices where if a person didn't work, they didn't eat. And so we care for that person in grief. That's why there's a grieving period, not because someone needs to only have that amount of time to feel bad. It, there's a functional benefit to it. Okay, let's press on. Oh, and I'm sorry, yes, lots of people had lots of children. So there are sons all over the place. And I think it's a lovely modern question to say, how would his sons have felt? Yeah, I mean, here you are, and it's your cousins or your brothers or whatever, they're just burned up. And then you're like, now you keep doing your job. And you're thinking, oh my God, I mean, I, do I really wanna do this anymore? Did you see what just happened to them? But you press on. Again, did this literally happen? That's not the question. What we should glean from this though, among other things, is God is not joking. Do this stuff. We often like to think, I've talked about here in here before, of I have a problem with um, Jesus being your friend. I don't really need a friend. I have friends. I don't need Jesus to be my friend. I would like Jesus to be my savior. And so God can be God. That is fine. I don't mind a little fear of God. What's wrong with that? Nothing. We do not need to tame God. God is God. And we can kind of live in that complexity. And in a sense, this story is saying, yep, a little fear of God is just fine. Okay, let's press on because we have one more. Oh, no. It's 1130 and y'all have lunch plans. Okay, we'll get to the clean and unclean next week. We'll do chapters 11, 12 in addition to 17 and 18 next week. I appreciate you all. Glad to see you and I will see you next week. Be safe. Bye.